We do gather, Father, with expectant hearts. Expecting you to come today. Expecting you to come again. And we look forward with hope to that glorious time of your return. We gather, too, grateful for the Thanksgiving season where we might spend time with family and friends, where we might pause and consider all your blessings. Father, may we forget not all your benefits. And we gather as the church, Father, expecting you to do something today in us to continue to mold and shape us into the church you've called us to be, into the people of God that you've called us to be. And yet we're aware that there are many in our fellowship who aren't here today. Some are homebound and some are sick. And we pray that you would minister to them even now and use us as a church body to minister to them. May they, uh, may they sense your presence even now as we worship you. We praise you too for your word and pray that your word might go forth from this place throughout our community, throughout our nation. As we consider this time of missions, that your word can be proclaimed around the world. May we have a passion to see that happen. We pray for our leaders today. We pray for our president and his family. We pray for our vice president and his family. We pray for our governor and her family, for our mayor and his family, for our police chief and fire chief, for those, Lord, that you've placed above us. We pray that you would cause them to make godly decisions that affect the lives of so many people that you would protect them and keep them safe. We pray, Father, that you would bless the proclamation of your word this day. That you would receive all the glory and all the honor as your word is proclaimed. And as your word Sharper than any two-edged sword pierces our hearts. We give you praise for that. What a wonderful privilege you've blessed us with. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Turn in your Bibles, please, to John chapter 1. So the ultimate question that um, ultimately has to be answered by ourselves and <clears throat> by our family and by our friends and by our neighbors is, who do you say Jesus is? And how you answer that question reveals whether you have a Savior who can truly save. You say, who do you say Jesus is? And you can answer that. You, you, you can understand that you, you might have a Savior who can truly save you. One who was with God 
and was God. But even beyond that, in the middle of the pain of life, I did, I did a funeral yesterday for a family who was just devastated and, and hurting. And, and, and even in the, the middle of the pain of life, when, when you're misunderstood or when your faith falters or when you struggle in your sin, uh, you, we also need to be reminded, who is Jesus You know, if God is able to surprise the finest Bible scholars who taught at the first coming of Jesus Christ, He's certainly able to surprise you and me each and every day as we remind ourselves that the Word who became flesh is with you and He is able to do what He has promised to you. And He will do what He's promised to you. So who do you say Jesus is? Or who is Jesus? Today is part two of this message we began last Sunday. Last week we saw the three phrases in that first verse which form the first point of this message. You see, you thought you were getting off last week. And we'll review that, that point again. But this is what we looked at in John 1, 1 last week. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we saw then the eternity of the Son, and we saw the personality of the Son, and we saw the deity of the Son in those three phases. That formed the first point, really, in this message, is the Word's relationship to God. So we'll see the Word, we'll, we'll review a little bit the Word's relationship to God, but then we'll look at the Word's relationship to the universe, and then we'll look at the Word's relationship to people. Let me read those first five verses for you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It's the Word of God for the people of God. So first, the Word's relationship to God. We looked at this in great part uh, last week. but John begins with this foundational statement that declares that Jesus was God. And then he ends the book that we talked about last week in chapter 20 with Thomas declaring, after realizing who Jesus was after the resurrection, with Thomas declaring, My Lord and my what? God. As he believes what Jesus said. And then John tells us in that same chapter why he wrote all this down in chapter in, in 20, verse 31. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Now, men today deny Jesus' divinity. And they want to accept him. You know, he's a good teacher. That Jesus was an okay teacher, wasn't he? Or just a nice, moral, religious person. Some call him him the, the first social activist. Some people have called Jesus a feminist. Some people have called Jesus a pluralist. And everything else under the sun other than what Scripture says, very God of very God. Begotten, not made, being of one essence with the Father. We'll look at that 
passage later. But if he's just a good teacher, he's not even that. One time C.S. Lewis said, We can call Jesus a liar, a lunatic, or Lord, but we cannot merely call him a good teacher if he's indeed not God. This is the quote out of mere Christianity. We can say Jesus lied to us, and we can say he's mad because he's a nasty liar. We can also pity him and say he's a lunatic to think he was God and to lay down his life for a cause that was of his own making or to surrender himself in his death on the wheel of history. But if he is who he says he is, and he is because he said and proved that he was I am, then we must call him Lord. And because he is Lord, we must obey him and worship him. He's, he, he can't just be a nice moral teacher. He's either a lunatic, he's a liar, or he's the Lord. He's God. And it is in Christ that we see what Moses longed to see long before Jesus. He wanted to, Moses wanted to see God's face as well as wanting to see God's attributes as well as wanting to see God's personality. And so if we want to see or hear God, we must look to and listen to Jesus Christ. He's the only one who's seen God. He's the only one who can make Him known. The word has cle- the word meaning Jesus, the word has clearly, clearly made known to all who God is. And the resurrection is the reason why God calls men everywhere to repent, to turn, to be obedient to, and to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's talking to the philosophers in Athens, and he says in Acts chapter 17, the God who made the world and everything, and it's a long passage, I don't think I've got it up there. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hand, nor, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet He is actually not far from each of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. That's how Paul explained this. And so having established the position of the Word, the position of the Logos in relation to deity, John then shows us his relation to the universe, the Word's relationship to the universe in verse 3. All things were made through him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. Verse 2 is actually transitional. Verse 2, He was in the beginning with God. And if, as if the verse 2 or those first two verses were not convincing enough, John goes on to emphasize the words pre-existence even more in talking about creation. In verse 3. And he states it, first he states it positively. 
All things came into being. All things were made through Him. Then he repeats the same thing in the negative sense, that just to make sure that exceptions were impossible in this case. So he goes, all things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. So he hits it both ways, positively and negatively. And he couldn't, he couldn't just say the first phrase, all things were made for them, because then someone might say, oh, well, so maybe there were others. And so then he goes to the negative sense. No, without him was not anything made that was made. Now, whoever made everything that is, whoever made everything that is, is God. And he is saying that this eternal one, the Word, the Logos, is God who made everything. That verse 2 then affirms that transition into verse 3, created the universe. And there's this parallel between the opening lines of John, we saw in the beginning, we saw that parallel last week in the beginning, in the, in the first chapter of Genesis, and then in the beginning, the first chapter of John. But there's, there's even more connection between Genesis and John when we get to uh, verse 3. And we have all God speaking. Then God said, let there be light. Then God said... Uh, let there be an expanse in the midst of water of the waters. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place. And God said in verse 11, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruit trees. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. Verse 20, and God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. And God said in verse 24, let the earth bring forth living creatures. Then God said, verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. God speaks. That's the Word. That's Jesus speaking creation into being. John MacArthur says about this, the proof that the Word is God is that the Word created And whoever creates all that is, is God. I mean, you don't have to think very long to come to that obvious conclusion. Whoever made everything is God. And the verification of the statement that the Word was God is that everything that was made was made by the Word. So how's that work? In these lines in Genesis I read to you and others, we see God the Son at work. Just as as John describes Him in verse 3, He is the Logos. He is the eternal Word of God. He speaks into being what the Father has conceived and design in his amazing infinite mind, whatever that is like. And so this verse talks about how the Father and the Son co-participated in creation. The creation of all things. Leon Morris said, The relation of the first two persons of the Trinity in the work of creation is of interest. There's a careful differentiation of the parts played by the Father and the Son in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Creation was not the solitary act of either. Both were at work, for that matter, still are. The Father created, but He did it through the Word. It's the thought that the Son is the agent, much like the contractor is the agent for the owner of the house. The the Son is the agent in creation for the Father. 
Christ is the one through whom the Father expresses himself. We see this even more clearly in Colossians and in Hebrews. In Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You see, Paul got it. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Paul got it. The writer of Hebrews got it too in Hebrews 1. Very first few verses. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, to whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the brightness of his glory, your Bible might say. The radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So there's clear testimony throughout Scripture concerning Christ's deity and Christ's creative power. This brings out the absolute deity of Jesus Christ. Creation is ascribed to Him, and no one but God can create. Now, even in all our boasting, Humans cannot bring about even one blade of grass. I seem to be able to bring about lots of weeds, but I can't bring about one blade of grass. Not even weeds, by the way. And it says all things. All things were made by Him. And this wouldn't be true as if the Jehovah's Witnesses say that he's a creature. This would not be true if he was a creature. This wouldn't be true even as they say that he was the first and the highest creature. No, no exceptions. All things were made by him. Just as he was before all things, and therefore he was and is eternal, so he is the originator of all things, and therefore omnipotent. John MacArthur also says about this. So, John wants to introduce us to the Word, to the force in the universe that made everything, to that emanation that comes from God that revelation that comes from God, that manifestation that comes from God, which expresses the will of God, the mind of God, the power of God, the purpose of God, the design of God, the plan of God. He wants us to meet this powerful force. And all things means every detail of creation, every single detail, each element and each thing, each being and each person. Whether, whether it's material or spiritual, whether it's angelic or human, all come into being through Christ. And that were made, all things were made, that, that literally means came into being or became. And what's that saying? That's telling us that nothing was existing. No substance, no matter whatsoever. You know, matter is not eternal. God did not create outside of Himself. 
If he created outside of himself, then he would be creating from something that was less than perfect, quite possibly evil. And so Jesus Christ took nothing but his will and his power, and he spoke the word and created every single thing out of nothing. And since he did that, it all belongs to him. Well, it belongs to his church as well. It belongs to his people as well, since we're heirs, joint heirs with him. But nothing exists that he didn't make. And if you doubt that Jesus owns everything, then all you have to do is go to Revelation chapter 10 and watch him come and take it back. So, John confirms that Jesus, that Christ was not a creature. The Word was not a creature. He was and is the Creator. As we saw in Hebrews 1, 3, He upholds all things by the Word of His power. So, last week we saw that we looked at the mystery of the Trinity And the summary of the Trinity is this. I've got this comparison here, which is important because we're making the shift now. Three persons with one nature. Three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One nature being one divine nature of the one living and true God. Three persons with one nature. And then we make the shift to the incarnation. And the doctrine of the incarnation is this. One person with two natures. One person, the person of God the Son in the incarnation. The two natures being the divine nature and the human nature. And lastly, that's what we see in verses 4 and 5. The words relationship to people. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Here we see for the first time the incarnate Christ. We see Him in many ways as He becomes a body to live among us. This picture is Christ. The, the embodiment of life, the embodiment of light coming into the world and how the darkness reacted to Him. This is the incarnation. And, then, and we see this in three parts in these two verses. First, in Him was life. This is really just simply the next step in the process. If, if He's the creator of life, then... In Him is life. Life comes from Him. If it is the Creator of everything, in Him is life. He's the life giver. If He made everything that's alive, then that life comes from something and it can only come from Him. He's the source of all life. That, that word life is used 36 times in the Gospel of John. Eleven of those 36 times, it's used in connection with eternal. It's being used here in a greater sense. Not just talking about in Him was life, our, our, our physical existence. But He's talking about Life in the widest possible sense. Every aspect of life comes from God the Son. William Hendrickson said the term life refers to the fullness of God's essence, His glorious attributes, holiness, truth, 
knowledge, wisdom, veracity, love, omnipotence, sovereignty. And so creature, the creature life is found in God. Spiritual life is found in God. Eternal life is found in God. Resurrection life is found in God. All found in Him. Now, the word that's used here is zoe, which some people would translate as spiritual life, meaning that John is only talking about spiritual life here. But there are other places John uses this word, and he's not just talking about spiritual life. And so, in this sense, it's all-encompassing. All facets of life come from Him. And so this is John's Christmas story. He opens by saying that, that, that the child that he doesn't really talk about is none other than the eternal God who made everything. He's self-possessed of life eternal and gives life and existence to everything. As we read from Acts 17, it is in Him we live and move and have our being. The second thing we see in these two verses, and the life, what about that life? Was the light of men. How can we understand that? Well, first, this statement in verse 4 follows verse 3 that says all things were made by Christ so that he's talking about creatures you and I you and me excuse me the light of men and he's talking about all men here He's not just talking about believers. He's talking about everyone. The life was the light of men. That, that, that light, that word light is just one of the divine titles that the Word is given, the Lord Jesus is given. It's equivalent to saying God was the light of men. And it speaks of the, the, the revelation uh, or, the, or the relation which Christ sustains with you and with me and with everyone else. He is the light. We see that. Look in verse 9. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. So in what sense is he the one, the true light that enlightens, that enlightens everyone? How do we take that? What does that mean to us? Simply put, it means everyone is accountable. Every rational man is morally enlightened. Oh, we see in, in uh, Romans 2 this truth. As Paul is talking about God's judgment and the law, listen to this in verse 15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. See, it's written on the hearts of everyone. He provides light for everyone in the world. Now, listen, I'm not saying this unbiblical thought that you hear from people from time to time that every person has some divine spark in them and all you have to do is fan that spark into a flame. That that teaching is from Satan. Um, Steve Brown would say that comes from the pit of hell and it smells like smoke. 
But natural man is responsible. Because all have what? They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. That's the light we're given. Everyone, he says in verse 9 of chapter 1. And we must give an account of ourselves. We are responsible because the, 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 the God's work through His law is written on our hearts and our consciences bear witness to that truth. And this is the light that he's talking, that John's talking about in, in verse 1 and verse 9, verse 4 and verse 9. And then Paul tells us where we stand in relation to all this. In Ephesians 2, verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. The unsaved man is dead in sin. Spiritual death means that you don't respond to God. You're like a corpse. You're spiritually like a corpse. A person who doesn't know God can be hit with... You can throw God's truth at that person all day long, but they will never respond until Christ comes. But he's still responsible. He'll never respond until life is given to the spiritually dead man. The one who is spiritual life gives himself to the spiritually dead man. You cannot make yourself alive by doing anything, by reading Scripture, by praying a prayer, by walking down the aisle during the response time. You are dead. And only the one who is life can give life to a dead person. He's the source of life. And so that is the relationship that we see between these two words, life and light. These are two words that are especially associated in the Gospel of John. We see in John 8:12, Jesus spoke to them saying, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We see it in John 9, John 11, John 14, and other places as well. So John asserts the full divinity of the Word with another picture, and he refers to Christ as the light of men. Everyone has received that light. Everyone is responsible. But only Christ can give the light and give life. Then the third part we look at in these two verses His relationship to people, the Word's relationship to people. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. That's another one of the divine titles that are given to Christ. Uh, In verse 1, He's spoken of as the Word. Verse 3, is the maker of all things. In verse 4, he's life. And in verse 5, he's light. Calling Jesus the light, the light of men, needs to be understood as A.W. Pink best concludes. Then the conclusion then is irresistible, the proof complete and final. That the Lord Jesus is none other than God, the second person in the Holy Trinity. This verse tells us the effects of the fall. Every man that comes into this world is lightened by his Creator, but the natural man rejects the light, and the result, as a result of rejecting the light, lives where? In darkness. Instead of natural man living up to the light that he has, you've heard that before, haven't you? He live up to the light that he has, which no one ever does. 
He loves the darkness rather than the light. John tells us that. So the unregenerate man, the lost person, is just blind. He's in the dark. We see that in verse 5. The darkness has not overcome it. But darkness goes away when light shows up. You notice that? Only the light of Christ can penetrate this darkness. Alexander McLaren says, John takes the fall for granted. He really does. If we start this, we read through these first five verses and we see that he's taking the fall for granted. The shining of the light is continuous, but the darkness is obstinate. It is the tragedy and crime of the world that the darkness will not have the light. It is the long-suffering mercy of God that the light repelled is not extinguished, but shines meekly on. You get it? You get that? By nature, all human beings love darkness because their deeds are evil. We read in John 3.19. Don Carson says, And when the light does put in an appearance, they hate it. Because they do not want their deeds to be exposed. And so A.W. Pink reminds us, Thus, nothing short of a miracle of saving grace can ever bring one out of darkness into God's marvelous light. He's light. We live in a world of darkness. Went to a movie this weekend, and most of the previews of the upcoming movies had to do with vampires or some and are some other form of dying we celebrate death these days our culture celebrates death and we live where people spend their lives stumbling in ignorance alienated from the life of God because of our ignorance. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4 about that. Now this I say and testify in the Lord. You must not, no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They become callous, have given themselves up to sensuality, Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And as the creator and sustainer of life itself, Jesus is uniquely qualified to bring light into the world. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And he calls us. To believe that we might become sons of light. John 12, so Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. John pleads with us. And John Piper calls this the invincibility of light. It is not overcome. So you could label verse 5, light is triumphant over darkness. And when you believe in Jesus, not only do you leave the darkness and the light enters, You actually join a family, family of the light. You become children of the light. Paul said that in Ephesians 5, For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. You can figure that out in verse 4. We have 
the life was the light of men. In verse 5, the light shines in darkness. So in the light in verse 4 and the light in verse 5. And then you have men in verse 4 and darkness in verse 5. Darkness is the world of mankind. And the light came into this world of mankind. And you notice darkness can't put it out. You can take pitch black darkness and if there's just one little small match, one little small candle and pitch black darkness, you can't make it so dark. You can't make it any darker to put out the light. The darkness cannot put out the smallest light. The blackest midnight cannot put out the smallest candle. So into this dark world of men comes the light, the light of life, the living God invading human darkness. So John expands on this thought as each verse goes. The eternity of Christ. And he expands on this verse throughout the rest of the book. That the light came into the world and that men loved the darkness rather than light. But even in their love of the darkness, the darkness could not put out the light. And John tells us that the Word... The incarnate one, the babe in Bethlehem, is the eternal God of the universe. And the world knows He came. Everyone knows He came. And they can try to put out that light, but they can't do it. John MacArthur goes on to say, The world may deny till it's blue in the face that the light came, but the light did come. He's very God of very God. As well as very man of very man. One divine person with two natures, divine and human, And because he possessed a human nature, listen to this, because he possessed a human nature, he's able to be one of us. And he's able to act for us. And because he has a divine nature, his actions have infinite value. So when he dies for the people of God as their representative... And as their substitute, that sacrifice is acceptable to the Father. That's what propitiation means. Is acceptable to the Father. And the salvation which He intends to gain for His people is a salvation that is sure to be possessed by His people. It's a guarantee for the people of God. And A.W. Pink says it better than I can. So let me share with you. Here, as nowhere else in Scripture so fully, the Godhood of Christ is presented to our view. That which is outstanding in His fourth gospel is the divine sonship of the Lord Jesus. In this book, we are shown that the one who was heralded by the angels to the Bethlehem shepherds who walked this earth for 33 years, who was crucified at Calvary, who rose in triumph from the grave, and who 40 days later departed from these scenes, was none other than the Lord of glory. The evidence for this is overwhelming. The proofs almost without number. And the effect of contemplating them must be to bow our hearts in worship before the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what C.S. Lewis said at the beginning. 
If he is who he says he is, and he is because he said and proved that he was, I am, then we must call him Lord. And because he is Lord, we must obey him and worship him. If you're here today and you don't know him, there is adequate proof that he is who he says he is. And you know it, but you keep trying to put the light out. You're still responsible. You must call him Lord. And because he is Lord, you must obey him and worship him. Because one day you will call him Lord. Scripture also says that one day every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Trust Christ's salvation for you today. Let's pray. In a moment, we'll sing a song. And during this song, if you have questions or uh, you you need somebody to pray with you, you want to talk about what we've talked about today further, there'll be some people in the back. And as we sing this song, we encourage you just to make your way back there. so important that you have your questions answered. So when we sing in a moment, you just make your way back there and there'll be, there'll be people back there to receive you. Further after this song, you'll have another opportunity to worship. There'll be men at the doors to receive at your offering. Father, Take the feeble words that I've spoken today and do a work in our hearts and our lives. And as we begin this season of the year, Father, we pray that creation power and resurrection power might fill our lives in such a way that we might boldly proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ wherever we go. For the glory of God. Move us, Lord, from where we are right now to where you want us to be. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.